0: Hello and welcome to the a Marketing Futures Podcast with your host, Charles Cantu, founder and CEO of Reset Digital. I'm Mike Burbridge, Senior Director of Marketing Futures and the producer of this episode. Friends, today we're taking a trip through time, all the way back to 350 BC Greece, where a philosopher by the name of Aristotle laid the foundation of much of modern Western thought, One of Aristotle's many contributions was binary logic, the idea that everything is either A or not A, or to put it in a more familiar term, ones and zeros. That's right, folks, the logic used to create the computer systems that run our world today was formulated 2,300 years ago. And while this system has served us well through the late 20th and early 21st centuries, the development of AI and machine learning has exposed a dangerous flaw in binary logic. Collecting data in this black-and-white, yes-or-no fashion has perpetuated bias in AI systems. Our guest today is Twain Liu, an inventor, engineer, and former UBS board observer for more than 20 major tech investments. Twain discussed why binary logic is insufficient when trying to replicate the human thought process in machines, and explained how Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man, and R2-D2 from Star Wars, both played a pivotal role in her journey to developing a more human AI.
1: Well, I am extremely excited today to share with everyone um, someone that has a, I say, unique view uh, around AI and its application, not just to marketing, but to the world. And so without further ado, let me go ahead and introduce you to Twain Liu. Twain, why don't you tell the audience a, a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, and, um, and what you do.
2: Thanks, Charles. Thanks for um, inviting me to your Marketing Futures podcast. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Um, so essentially, I am an inventor-founder of a computational system um, that is trying to tool artificial intelligence to represent and better understand our natural language, uh, our causal and common sense reasoning, and to be much more coherent than it currently is.
1: And so why don't you tell me a little bit about um, kind of the differentiators between um, what you coined and I love this, Silicon Valley and their uh, disinformation systems and um, their Aristotle uh, and so on and so forth views versus what you call natural intelligence. What are your thoughts?
2: So I've always started um, from the belief that uh, we humans are composed from quantum sunlight and stardust, right? and that humans are infinitely ingenious Um, and this is why we've been so super creative, so freeform um, in the types of tools that we've made um, over the millennia. Now in terms of, um, I actually brought some props with me. Um, So I would say this is us 13.8 billion years ago, right? Here we are Hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon atoms, nitrogen, and phosphorus, and sulfur, floating around as free Mm -hmm. quantum stardust, right? Mm -hmm. So that's us for about 13.8 billion years, right? We're free. We're wonderfully um, composing, recomposing, interacting with other particles. We're in a dance together. We're in orchestration together. And gradually, over time, we cohere together. Right, so literally we become quantum entangled, we're communicating intelligence with each other, and we are deciding not just to dance with each other and sing with each other and make music with each other, but then we're becoming, you know, together in terms of forming compounds and starting to become essentially natural organic life. Right, so that's us for 13.8 billion years wonderful evolution and then there's this guy called aristotle who comes along he shows up right like (laughs) 350 bc and he you know he's inherited some mathematical tools from pythagoras Mm -hmm. and some philosophy from socrates and some philosophy from plato and he goes against the grain of you know All three of his predecessors, right? So his three predecessors were very pro woman, right? And very much of the belief that women could be as intelligent and lead and even govern cities as anybody else, right? So Pythagoras, for example, had his math school and he had 17 women, right, in his math school. But then Aristotle arrives. And what does he do? He puts us into his binary boxes, right? And I'm going yep. to show this with this um this Rubik cube that I've got, so essentially, what he did was he said, "This white box is true, right mm-hmm. and it's valid, and it's a one, and this black box is." False. Okay, it's
3: binary.
2: It's binary, right? Exactly that. So he says that you know we are no longer quantum sunlight and stardust. We have now become his binary um, numbers, essentially his binary logic. And from you know which is true and the false, the one and the zero. And on top of this, he also plants this idea. That everything that happens is according to the rolls of the dice. So, in a way, he's sort of saying that he, Aristotle, the god of the mind, is rolling the dice for us, right? So, so now we have his constructs essentially of you know these binary states and this idea of everything that happens is about you know the rolls of dice and chance. So that's actually removed us from our natural coherency, which is our quantum sunlight and stardust. Now, my view is that we need to return to this and remember that we are quantum sunlight and stardust. So when we get to AI um, and you know marketing systems, what happens is that you know because of Aristotle, everything has become binary. the entire machine the you know marketing mechanics has become binary so when mm-hmm. we are segmenting people for example you're mm-hmm. saying are they male or female are they you know white or are they black are they good or are they bad so he is the person who has set those you know delineations or those cognitive biases of his and he's forced us Essentially, to abide by, you know, his cognitive biases. So now we're no longer free, right? Here's us, completely free, to dance, to orchestrate, um, to be free freeform. We're now bound by his binary logic. So, yeah. so that essentially is, you know, my my sort of um, starting basis um, in terms of, you know, the core logic. Um, of our
1: systems. I love it. So, so, and you know, what's interesting about that is if you look at some of the studies around, um, you know, Gregory Bateson and um, the hierarchy of influence, um, you know, the, the stuff that um, marketers in the world, quite frankly, has been leveraging uh, in this, um, let's just say, binary view of, of math. Uh, they're focused on the traits and the, and the behaviors, which quite frankly are the least influential. Right. And um, you know, what we've done, right. Me and my team around, you know, some of the tech that we built at at, at reset digital has been around the idea of Maslow's motivations around self-determination need states. So we're kind of going in a direction, which is why I was so enthralled when I, when I found your work, um, around that. Maybe you could tell us if we could take a step back and just talk about, you know, the, a younger Twain. And when you were eight years old and, and you're looking at, you know, Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man, um, what that was like, what you discovered and and kind of, let's get into maybe the yin and yang of things so that, so that people can really start to visualize kind of what your purview is.
2: So i you know, was incredibly blessed um, as a child because, you know, both of my parents um, really encouraged us to explore, to learn, to be outdoors, you know, with nature, um, to study, you know, the great artists, the great scientists, um, both East and West. Um, And Mm -hmm. so my dad um, was a photographer. So he wanted essentially to teach me about, you know, the light and perspectives and um, proportions. Yeah. And his way of introducing me to, you know, those sort of mathematical um, concepts was through da Vinci. Yeah. So he showed me, you know, da Vinci's Vitruvian man, and literally it spoke to me. Um, it just resonated. I, I completely got it. I thought it was, you know, brilliant because you know, when you're a child, you're curious about, you know, like, how on earth could he fit a man inside (laughs) a square and a sphere at the same time? This is like, this is amazing. Um, And, you know, like, subsequently, I I used to have these debates with my parents, because they were convinced that um, da Vinci's best work was the Mona Lisa, because they'd gone to the Louvre, and then we would kind of like... (laughs) You know, like, oh no, you know, and they would come back from from the Louvre and they'd say, oh no, you know, she follows us. She's, you know, mystical, she's enigmatic, she's just beautiful. And, and I would always make the argument for a Vitruvian man. Um, and then what happened was that um, I, well, first of all, I'd got into um, the sort of like the whole robot thing um from -hmm. watching Star Wars so I fell in love I'm the child who fell in love with R2-D2 right so so, so, so um so it was a it was a really kind of like mind expanding time for me essentially you know that entire time between like you know five and you know nine because my dad had introduced me to chess at five um and then into like you know Biochemistry and space science at six, and then electronics at seven because I because I fell in love with R two D two, and then mm-hmm. at eight it was like Vitruvian Man, and then at nine I was watching this documentary on animation, and it was all yeah. about you know um, stop start animation, and their example used Vitruvian Man, so in so they literally like on several sheets of paper on the top sheet of the paper, they put him where he's in the box position.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And you know, where he literally is in that T-shape, um, he's mm-hmm. static, he's not moving, right? He's in that fixed T-shape in the box. Mm-hmm. And then on the next page down, they had him in his, um, you know, star jump um, position, the X position mm-hmm. that was him mm-hmm. in his chair. And then in the next page down, his arms had moved slightly. He was still in this the star jump and his arms had moved slightly. And then they started flicking through the pages, right? And that's how originally cartoons and you know animation were started from Da Vinci's Retrivian Man and you know the inspirations from that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Because you know, I've been watching all of those, I've been watching all of those space science documentaries since I was six, right? And, you know, and they were talking about, well, you know, out in um, outer space, you have all of these particles and they're moving freely. And there's this thing called quantum entanglement. And there's something called like Schrodinger's cat where he's like dead and alive. And I was and um, like, literally the light bulb went off in, you know, my child brain. I was like, oh, the like Da Vinci's Vitruvian man, is Schrodinger's cat 450 years before Schrodinger thought of his cat, right? Mm -hmm. Because because in the box, Vitruvian man is dead. So in the same way, in the steel box, you know, Schrodinger's cat is dead, right? And then when he's in the sphere, which is the atom, he's actually alive, right? So so I read it as being, oh, so the Da Vinci has actually like left left me a clue, right? There's this fantastic um, picture that I love and somebody's left me a clue. And now I've got to go and kind of like figure out what this all means, right? So, mm-hmm. so that was my sort of, you know, initial um, introduction into the, the concept of, you know, quantum entanglement um, and into these ideas in terms of, you know, what is in the box is essentially dead information and what is mm-hmm. in the sphere is actually alive intelligence. The atom you know, where we're dancing and we're free and you know we can move our arms and limbs and our you know the neurons and our brains around um and compose them and orchestrate them and you know literally um create brain music with them.
1: You know, marketing has become so rigid around just the billions of dollars that are spent in media and, you know, this this lock into this binary system um, and um, losing, quite frankly, a a lot of focus on the art form of what marketing is for influence. Right. The the creativeness, the, the stuff that comes from. You know, you, you, that yin and yang of, you know, it, it, it has to flow in this, this constant, um, you know, entanglement of particles. Um, male and female, uh, conjoined and separate, um, interdependent, like that has, we, we've lost our way from the creativity. I say all that to say we just lost our way from the creativity of our messages. And we focus so much on this binary view. And then we wonder why there's no certainty that our messages are going to resonate or not resonate with a human being or a group of human beings. And I think we need to get back to basics. So I think what you're doing is, is just marvelous. And um, I'm, I'm very excited about um, having you on the show and sharing these thoughts with people. Um, it would be wonderful maybe if you could kind of share um, what you would call a naturally coherent system um, and on how AI, if we get out of, you know, what people are, you know, calling predictive and prescriptive analytics that is very binary and get into kind of more of a, a, a quantum idea of, you know, where we are, culture, climate, tech, et cetera, uh, versus where we may want to be going.
2: So part of my background um, is also in um, finance. Um, and so mm-hmm. I... I was at UBS, and I was Mm. board observer um, on over 20 of our tech investments. Mm. So um, one of the things that, you know, the financial industry taught me was how quantitative everything is, you know, I, Mm. apart from the fact that, you know, I, I um, studied mathematics, um, and I scored, you know, 99% in proven stats, and, you know, like, A's and like linear algebra and, you know, econometrics and those types of very quant subjects.
1: So, Flex that brain, girl. Flex that brain.
2: <laughs> so, 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 you know, and it's it's interesting because, you know, there's that part of me, which is obviously quantitative, but then I'm also an artist, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know if you've, you know, seen my artwork and, and I've shared some of it on LinkedIn. Um, but, you know creativity and art and, you know, culture, essentially like culture is what I would say has been missing from, you know, a lot of um, our um, modeling techniques in business Mm -hmm. for a really long time. Um, So if I look specifically at marketing, you know, and, you know, I was in business school and I remember um, sitting through, you know, um, Adam Smith and, you know, they were talking about the rational doctrine, right? and you know like in marketing they talk about like you know um the segmentation targeting positioning um seven P's processes um well originally it was like four p's and then they decided to add another three (laughs) um and,
3: and,
2: and then you know we look at you know the whole kind of like awareness interest um desire and then action and all of the quant around like you know um this the ctr metrics um the um, oh, yes, y- you know, the dashboard, right? Everybody, everybody's right, familiar right. with all of these dashboards and the ratios and and uh, you know, conversion rates and whether or not you're doing the right A B testing, um, and mm-hmm. you know, and all of that, right? And even you know, even when I was a teenager in business school, and I remember this because I wrote it in the paper where I like I opened one of my essays um, and it was on um, advertising as a monopolistic barrier, right, to entry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I opened the essay and I said, listen, like Oscar Wilde wrote the picture of Dorian Gray in 1870, which was the same year that Alfred Marshall published Principles of Economics, right?
3: Mm.
2: And Dorian Gray is a classic like negator, right, of the entire rational doctrine. Right? <laughs> but, no, right. So 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 my lecturer literally wrote like next to that particular sentence, like how does Young Lu know this? Right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> because, because it's like, you know, because they were expecting me to kind of given that i'm also a mathematician they're like oh you know she's just going to go for like yes all of the linear graphs and all of the binary numbers and all of the constants, right. you know is perfect and i was like no because the thing about dorian gray is you know how do you calculate that trade-off right where he's making subjective and cultural decisions right mm-hmm, and are mm-hmm. innate in him that are in his heart and in his right. soul right yeah this is the thing about a lot of our marketing metrics is that it has no heart. It has no soul. It has That's no character, right. right? It has no freedom or flexibility. It has no adaptability, right? So when we are kind of like measuring, you know, like CTR, right? Or any of mm-hmm. the conversion rates or anything like, you know, session ID durations,
3: right?
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we're going through like the entire programmatic pipeline, right? And mm-hmm. we at ratios and those numbers, they're just so sterile, right? That's
3: right.
2: Yep. There's, uh, they're sterile and they do not represent, you know, what I call that yin-yang, you know, natural coherency because of the fact that they are missing the heart and the soul and the culture. And the free form, right?
3: So, right? So,
2: for me, you know, this is why I, I've, you know, very recently been approached um, to take part in um, some MIT, um, IEEE um, projects, essentially to literally reimagine, um, you know, some foundational scientific concepts, right, from ground yep, up.
3: Yep. Yep.
2: Because of the fact that we have, you know. Locked into the binary and linear thinking right mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the, that Aristotle set up, um, so my view is you know as much as possible is to try to get us back to quantum sunlight and stardust as you know as the, as the starting um, basis where we are um, dancing we're orchestrating we're composing um, we are you know, combining with each other in a way that is, you know, synchronous, um, that's mm-hmm. that's creative, um, where we are not essentially bound by the mindset of, you know, a Greek logician, um, you know, who's like long deceased and, you know, isn't sort of relevant to our times. I think that's one of the things is like, we as humans have evolved so much in terms of our own sort of constructs of enlightenment, right? Over the last, you know, like 300,000 years since sapiens first arrived, right? Yep, yep. Um, And, you know, we've had our voice boxes, right? For a lot longer, right, Mm. than like, 2300 years of Aristotle's binary linear logic, right? <clears throat> we have had our hearts for like millennia, like literally 2.8 million, billion years, right? Since, um, <clears throat> since protozoa, since your eukaryotic cells. So we've had our own soul essentially. For billions of years, and then now somehow we've we're supposed to kind of follow according to like you know this one Greek guy's narrow mindset. I think, like at a scientific validity level, right? Like if I'm I'm going to think about like, does this one guy? Aristotle, does he represent like 8 billion people, right? Right. his mind represent the cultures, the the heart, the soul, the love, right? The willingness essentially to, you know, um, get to know other people, right? The willingness to travel, right? To learn from other cultures, to interact with other cultures, to apply our are very flexible and agile minds to essentially become, right? Different versions of ourselves over time, right? Or are we just going to be bound by this, you know, this narrow binary box, linear box of this one Greek guy?
1: So yeah, I. so I would say, you know, to that, first of all, um, you know, shout out to John Havens because I think that's how I found you in the, in the first place. But I'm excited to, to see where that leads um, that path leads us. And I will also add, you know that that anthropological, cultural approach that you talk about um, is so necessary, right? Because you know the, the truth is, you know part of um, our, our genome and part of our makeup, as you are probably already know or inherently know, is that when we when we add words, I, there's this this whole. I forget the gentleman that said it, but I but I posted this a while back. Was you know the map is not the territory, right? Because we bring our experiences. Um, to the table when, when we partake in something, whether it's a word, whether it's a picture, whether it's a movie, whatever the thing is. So, you know, 50 different people watching the same thing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, experiencing, you know, vestibular, whatever, our proprioception systems and our senses, we're experiencing it in our own way. And then we're trying to put words on the thing as opposed to being part of the experience, right? And what I think I hear you saying in a lot of ways is is how do we interpret as human beings our experience and get out of just trying to like pigeonhold this binary thing um, one way or the other with these words that actually just kind of constrain us as a species. Um, And quite frankly, as a planet, right? We got to get out of this way of thinking uh, if we're gonna solve a lot of the bigger problems that that we're faced with. Um, so maybe at this point, um, it would be good to talk a little bit about kind of where deep learning is, where you see it is, um, and, and what has to change, uh, and how you intend to change it.
2: So with deep learning, um, I had, um, I, I finished my maths degree. And literally, I did my last exam on a Thursday by the Monday. I had um, joined the editorial team of Risk, which is the trade journal for the financial um, you know derivatives industry
0: and okay. I was writing
2: about you know black shoals black shoals equations black black box um, AI um, mm-hmm. and that 's where I was for the summer and then after the summer, I joined Professor John Taylor who mm-hmm was um, 2009 IEEE um, Pioneer Award winner Uh and Professor Taylor um, had been the graduate supervisor of my linear algebra professor Uh So, so he'd heard about me and he said you know what are you going to be doing with your life? Like now you're you know now you're a graduate you can't kind of um, you can't come into lectures and kind of you know throw curveballs at us anymore. Um, you have to like you know you have to be serious and you know go and get a job and well because I I pretty much threw a lot of curve balls at you know at my professors um, because I was always asking them but why why is it why is a math equation this way like. Why did they assume that people are just you know rational robots, right? And you know mechanical. And so John was wonderful. Uh, professor Taylor was wonderful because he um, he had graduated from um, Cambridge. Um, he'd you know done his um, sort of astrophysics um, mm-hmm. PhD up at Cambridge, and my linear algebra professor had um, done her um, astrophysics. Um, PhD at Imperial and then you know become his post postgrad um after that. And
3: mm-hmm. then
2: my um my personal tutor um at university was a um also an, you know had studied astrophysics. So I was in great company, right? You know, mm-hmm. having been like the child who watched all those space science programs and then you know being essentially educated. Um, by, by professors who were really into astrophysics. So, John Taylor um, said, "Look, why don't you come and join? You know, this hedge fund where I'm director of research, and you know, we're building these um, five different deep learning models. So, mm-hmm. you know, we had like an adaptive lag model. We had, um, you know, essentially a stochastic gradient descent model." The usual suspects yep and what we did there was essentially we tried to do fund asset allocation modeling um, so we tried to optimize the models for a number of you know stock equity um, products mm-hmm. um, and you know one of the world's largest sovereign funds was our client so we would run these models um, and then once the models had you know um, outputted their results, we would then obviously have um, the meeting to discuss whether or not the models had actually got the right error correction codes in them, mm-hmm. and whether or not you know, there were outliers, or whether or not you know, we had either sufficient data, we checked you know, in terms of using different statistical techniques um, to check you know, for precision, for accuracy. And it works pretty much in the same way that A-B testing works in marketing, right? Yep, yep, so, Yeah, so we have you know, the hypothesis. Uh, we do a null hypothesis test, and mm-hmm. we try and see whether or not you know, those data points are within the bounds of you know, our hypothesis, right? And we decide whether or not we reject um, a model for whatever reason or whether or not we want to do more you know, fact tail testing right?
3: Yep.
2: And so, for me, where I see current deep learning is, you know, from, from that time when I was working with Professor Taylor to now, is that there hasn't, like, if I look at the mathematics, and, and this is why I'm working, you know, on um, recomposing the primitive logic, like literally mm-hmm. from, from ground state up, if I look at you know where we are in terms of deep learning today, I mean
3: mm-hmm. as much
2: as there have been improvements in you know image recognition um and so on, the mathematics like foundationally hasn't changed in terms of you know the bayesian techniques right um right since or the statistical um physics statistical mechanics techniques, they haven't actually changed since about eighteen eighty right so And then it gets us also into this question of, um, you know, whose mind are we trying to simulate in the machine? Uh Uh Because Maxwell Boltzmann did some, um, obviously like, you know, developed a number of um, scientific tools and Boltzmann in particular has what he called the universal mind in a box, right? Uh where he was measuring essentially you know um gas molecule the, the motion of you know ideal gases um and you know electron movements and he was trying to predict essentially you know how many molecules he could contain within a box so at the moment what we have in boltzmann machines are those you know mathematical tools that were developed for ideal gases right that actually aren't equivalent to our neurons right so so in terms of like architecture we have like this like singular mental box right Mm -hmm. that is running these these statistical simulations of an ideal gas and Let's note, ideal gases don't actually exist in nature, right? <laughs> so, right. So, so so, they're unnatural. So they're not like, you know, properly representing or simulating our or natural neurons, right? Or, you know, our natural um, thought states, right? Right, exactly. And yet, like, you know, the, the entire deep learning community is like running around going, oh, don't worry, as long as we throw more GPU at it, right? And as long as we get get more like n data points and so oftentimes i i sort of um i sometimes you know i rib them quite a bit right because Mm
3: -hmm.
2: obviously i'm a math grad i know what the standard error is i know what the standard deviations are um and i know how important n is right in terms of on the denominator And, and i so i can understand what their obsession with like increasing n so number of data points to you know essentially like reduce um the standard errors and standard deviations are right right I, i i get that but here's the thing right if you are um essentially measuring right and comparing human intelligence right and how neurons Compose their you know our thoughts with an with some statistics of some non-existent right ideal gas. it's like, okay, we're not comparing apples with apples right and so we're we're trying to simulate um, we're trying to simulate a non-existent like alien intelligence in the machines. we're not actually simulating human intelligence right bingo uh, yeah. Yeah, so so, so I, I'm I'm constantly kind of like, you know, um laughing at some of the some of the um mathematical non-equivalences and um mathematical incongruences that happen, right? Because mm-hmm. over time when you know when the deep learning community talks about, you know, oh the machine is intelligent, what they actually mean is The information processing is efficient, right? Right. That is what they mean. Um, And, you know, the information processing is efficient because we have managed to um, get enough end data points to reduce those standard errors. The standard errors in terms of, you know, the information transmission.
3: Yeah.
2: So, so yeah I I I just you know like at a very intuitive level um as well as you know the technical level it's unquestionable that we need to you know literally go back to um primitive you know building atoms right to yep. reconstruct um and you know and to make sure that the ai that we're building both you know in terms of at a a data level as well as an algorithmic level actually represents you know our natural human intelligence and cultural coherency right yep because obviously we don't want to get into a situation where the ai is binary it's thinking in terms of the trolley problem right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like literally it can only decide, well, yes, I'm going to kill the human because they have passed like, you know, a 55% criteria on the bell curve.
1: Right. That's the whole, have you read Age of M? I mean, you're going to MIT, so I'm assuming that you have, but um, uh, Age of M was was written by um, Robin Hanson.
0: Mm-hmm
1: you read that um you know it talks it literally talks about that um and what has to happen for all that but it's very science fiction but also kind of grounded in you know what what could really happen right um so so pretty fascinating if you haven't um you know one of the chief concerns Inherent in AI um, is bias, right? Racial bias. We've talked about not being able to tell a black person from any other person, and you know, that being a thing. And people, uh, you know, potentially going uh, to jail over stuff like this. Um, you know, could you share a few examples, maybe of, of where this has already resulted in faulty AI? Some of these things, and, and your concerns um, for our future in everyday life.
2: So um, between natural language understanding and vision recognition, um, I mm. focus mostly on natural language understanding.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but the bias problem is pretty much the same um, across yeah. you know, NLU and, um, and vision recognition. And mm. I would sort of pinpoint it to um, the fact that you know the field has conflated and confused. Mathematical bias, with you know, human subjective bias.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So there is a specific definition of bias within mathematics, right? Um, which is to do with um, you know the bell curve and um, how, if you flip a coin or throw a dice, the deviation essentially from the mean, right? Yep. that each one of those dice produces. Whereas subjective human bias is to do with, you know, our culture and our lived-in experiences, right? Mm-hmm. And so, for example, if, you know, if you've been brought up in a neighborhood where, you know, everybody else is looks the same as you, thinks the same as you, right? And mm-hmm. you then move to a city um, where, you know, there's much more um, cultural diversity, your immediate sort of response is fear, right? And yes. from the fear, you end up biasing against, you know, those other people, right? Because, because, you, because you haven't been sort of um, socialized or conditioned to, you know, see or experience a culture that's different from yours. Mm-hmm. So some of the biases that exist in machine learning happens because there is a kind of homogenic, um, you know, homogenic and monolithic mindset, right, mm. in the field of AI, because of the fact that you know some of them, some of the engineers haven't necessarily lived, you know, those cultural experiences, right. Mm. Mm-hmm. of the people who are affected by the systems that they build. So I think it's a, you know, I I think it's really important, like the education piece is really important in terms of both, you know, if possible, like rotating those engineers, right? Into mm-hmm. actually like live and embody in cultures, right? that are not their own like that they weren't you know um raised in so that's one thing the other thing is obviously I love, like, I
1: love that I love that that is like okay now you know these engineers you need to live in brooklyn you need to spend some time in exactly. oakland got to go down you got to go down south i'm going to send you over to nigeria and benin like all these different places, you know, I love that idea. I love that concept. So you heard it here first. People are going to rewind that a few times, but
3: I'm sorry. To, I'm
1: sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: So, so yeah, so I, I absolutely I'd advocate for them being embedded in, you know, cultures, right, that they were not raised in, right, because it will be mm-hmm. an eye opener and it will make, you know, the technology much better. They Mm -hmm. also need to do much better in terms of, like, outreach, right? So so I'll give you an example from, like, two years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. I got invited, um, you know, to the Science Museum by Imperial College in London um, because Mm -hmm. they were trying to encourage, like, these inner-city kids to get into, like, you know, technology. And one of the things is, you know, for us as engineers, it is really important when we are, um, you know, coding product is to also step outside of ourselves, right? So, so when I say step outside of ourselves, I mean like, you know, in, in my case, I've been very blessed. Um, I've lived, you know, in Asia Pacific, in Europe, in, you know, North America, my family are you know, dispersed all over the world. We consider ourselves to be very global, right? And mm-hmm. I've been very fortunate in terms of my own education. But I'm also aware that there can be these sort of like, you know, um, mind barriers, right? From mm-hmm. like in terms of other engineers, where first of all, they have their own fear, right? Like they're fearful of going and meeting like teenage school kids. Like literally, like guys guys who yeah. are like you know, in their twenties and thirties, right, and they're like Silicon Valley engineers, and they're kind of like they're scared of meeting like school kids, right, and it's the most bizarre thing, mm-hmm. whereas I always believe that you know we actually have to like get outside of our you know comfort zones, right, and we have to step outside of ourselves because then we grow as people, right right so for them, it's to actually like do outreach, right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to go to these sort of like, so with the science museum thing, I was asked to code essentially um, an Alexa app to show the kids, you know, like they could ask Alexa, like who are the greatest, you know, scientists and inventors, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if I was a white male engineer, I would probably just have like cited the usual suspects right
3: like
2: newton, right right like newton mm-hmm. einstein all of the dudes right fleming all of the dudes <laughs> all
3: the
2: dudes but, uh, yeah <laughs> i mean they're fantastically genius dudes but still they're still all of the dudes right um right. whereas i actually like i stepped outside of myself right i stepped outside mm-hmm. of my own like immediate lens and my own immediate mind's eye and i proactively went in search of black inventors and scientists, right? So for for example, like I discovered, oh yeah, okay. So bioluminescence, right? Was discovered by Emmett Chappell, right? So of Mm -hmm. course I put him into the database, right? Mm -hmm. Right? And I discovered like, you know, Patricia Bath had invented essentially what became um, laser eye surgery. So of course I put Mm -hmm. her into, you know, into my database. And I had already, you know, got knowledge of like, you know, obviously, um, Catherine Johnson and, you know, all of the NASA ladies, right? Like Margaret Hamilton yep. and, yep. you know, Ada and, um, and, um, Admiral Hopper and Hedy Lamar. Um, and then I put in like a Chinese quantum physicist who was the first, you know, first, um, Wolf Prize winner ever. Right.
3: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Um, and And on top of that, I put in, you know, the brilliant white male dude, um, you know, inventors and scientists like Einstein and and, uh, Babbage um, and so on. So I think that's really important is, you know, when we are designing, um, engineering, you know, applying our knowledge, right, Mm. our opportunity, right, is... Our opportunity, even to, just in terms of our own personal growth, is to actually like proactively go and like look for things right from other cultures, right? That yep. actually inform our work, right? And make it even more intelligent.
3: Yeah. I love it. And and Twain, you
1: literally blew through the next four questions and answered all of them. <laughs> so that was you know, that was that was brilliant in every regard. Maybe we should we should just kind of touch on kind of the stuff that I always touch on with everybody. What are your thoughts? I mean, you kind of already hit it from an anthropological standpoint. What are your thoughts on diversity and
3: inclusion?
2: It is hugely important. Um, and so, you know, if I look at, for example, like the fact in the US, the investor class for every dollar that they have, they only put in like three cents, to female mm. founders. I think that Talk is, you know, I think that's like f- fundamentally, like with my, you know, former um, banker and, you know, board observer hat on, I think that's fundamentally a flawed logic, right? On their mm-hmm. part.
3: Yep.
2: And I can make the argument, both in terms of you know the economics of it, which is that female founders, like if we look at you know, um, if we look at the states, we have you know forty two percent of small businesses are founded by you know women. Right? Yep. They are responsible for like up to like ten million employed employment jobs. Right? <clears throat> women account for twenty two trillion dollars of consumer spending in the States. Um, And the fact that in terms of marketing, over 90% of women say that, you know, advertisers don't understand us, right? Mm. This means that there is a huge market opportunity, right? For the people who actually understand women, and will code and build technologies and systems that serve potentially eighty-five trillion dollars worth of global consumer spending by women by you know the year twenty um, twenty-three, according to you know um, Boston Consulting Group analysis, right? So that's the female part of why it's incredibly important to, for you know the entire VC class in and you know all of the businesses the executives as much as possible to really open up the way in which they're doing their um you know future scopes and you know modeling right and yep. to, as much as possible to support those inclusion <laughs> initiatives
1: right it's not just the right it's not just the right thing to do it is the smart thing to do Right. Exactly.
2: Oh, yeah. It, you know, the bottom line, like in total, right, if we really think about if we were to completely change the primitive logic, right, from the binary and from this, this you know, narrow linear thinking, right, to mm-hmm. actually include culture, right, which is, you know, our heart, our soul, our language, right, our gender, mm-hmm. Our values, our beliefs, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That entire market is literally worth $640 trillion, right? Of the OTC derivatives market. Like that, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, in terms of re- completely reimagining, you know, what capitalism is and what, you know, the economic model is, right? Mm-hmm. So just in terms of, you know, investable assets and consumer spending right Mm -hmm. women account for potentially 85 trillion dollars worth right you and and so you know that's a huge amount of money right an opportunity that's being left on the table right and so there is no point the VC class burning like a hundred million dollars or whatever on you know pointless technologies like Juicero right or mm-hmm. you know Theranos or you know or I was reading about like Scale Factor oh, yeah. for example right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or or even like yo right it's like why why would you give 10 million to an app like yo when you could equally invest that in a black founder. Right. Okay. Where the market potential is absolutely huge. And if I I was at um a startup going um conference where I listened to Marlon, and I'm gonna get his name wrong. Um I can't remember his surname, but he was from uh cross-cultural ventures, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can think of like three amazing black VCs, right? Tristan Walker, Arlen Hamilton and um marlin right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the thing is okay we are not talking like we're not talking like pennies and cents here right in terms of the market opportunity right we literally are talking like in excess of one trillion dollar market opportunities that that are being missed right because of the fact that you know the way that we have set up those mind lenses right defaults to, as it were, you know, the narrow Aristotelian quantitative way of looking at things, right?
1: Right, because it's all Newtonian, right? Our whole capitalist system is built on Newton, right? And that comes from Aristotle, so it all makes perfect sense. It ties. So, you know, and now I'm going to give you probably the hardest question of of all time that I've ever asked anybody is... um, is coming up, so I ho- hopefully <laughs> while you were answering all those, all those tough questions, you're ready for the hardest one, which is what is your favorite album of all time and why?
2: Oh, it has to be Whitney. It has to be Whitney Houston's greatest hits album, right? Mm. I mean, there are just so many, you know, first of all, every single note that she sings Mm -hmm. tells such a deep story right like Mm -hmm. every time you listen to you know any form of music you want that song to tell you a story and you want it to resonate with you right and Mm -hmm. you want it to take you on that journey where you know in the entire story arc right where you feel sad you feel elated you feel compassion you feel you know like you you feel heartbroken and then you feel hopeful and then you feel like a certain indignation and you feel anger and you feel you literally want the entire rainbow motion journey right mm-hmm. any music that you're listening to so i would have to say whitney right
3: mm-hmm.
2: um and then the other um album like if i could have a second album it would probably <laughs> be um Harvard von Karajan conducting Beethoven, right? Mm. For the same reasons that it literally takes, you know, my soul on that um journey.
1: Oh, I love that. Now, as the as the obvious follow-up, what are you listening to now and why?
2: At the moment I'm obsessing about this um this very Chinese song. Um, it's by uh, Teresa Teng, who is a great Taiwanese um, singer from like the 1970s. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's an old classic. Um, so it's called um, The Moon is My Heart. And mm-hmm. the version that I love um, is the, the piano version by Carl Doi. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I just keep like, literally, I'm, I'm playing that on loop. Mm-hmm. like literally every, every five minutes. I mean, I, I just love that song at the moment.
1: Oh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to cue it up. Take a, take a deep listen. Twain, it, it has been, well, I warned you. I, I thought this might be one of our longer than 20, 30 minute, um, conversations. And I knew that it would, and you are just absolutely brilliant. We are privileged to have you in our presence and, um, we really appreciate your time. This has been wonderful.
2: Thank you so much, Charles, for inviting me. And, you know, and it's just been a pleasure. And thank you to Michael for sharing your, for, for sharing our, you know, loft experiences, right?
0: <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of the A Marketing Futures Podcast. Got an idea for an upcoming topic or guest? shoot us a note at marketingfutures at marketingfuturesatana.net. Make sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you want more innovation goodness, head on over to marketingfutures.ana.net.